It was supposed to not be on because that could have been bad. Yeah, <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, clearly I'm not as smart as Josh, the chemistry guy. I struggle with switch, okay? So turn that switch on. All right, thank you, David. Well, I want to welcome everyone here, like uh, has been mentioned already. If you haven't already, open your Bible up to Acts chapter 2. We're going to continue in our study in Acts. We're in our third week here. Uh, and if you remember, this is the story of the greatest revolution in history. No movement has changed the world uh, or had the degree of impact like the birth of the church and Christianity. And here is the story of that explosive birth. So like I said, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Go ahead and turn there. Um, but by way of review, uh, at this point in the story in Acts, let's talk about what's going on. The resurrected Jesus had appeared for 40 days, proving the truth of who he is and his gospel message uh, before hundreds of people. After 40 days, Jesus ascended into heaven where he is now, seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling in all power. Then, as Pastor Milt shared with us last week, uh, that ascension came with the promise that Jesus, as he went up to the Father, would send down the Holy Spirit to indwell his people. So that's what happened, we learned about last week, at Pentecost. But 120 followers of Jesus were gathered in a room, and then suddenly, with no warning... Deafening sounds, wind and fire, God pours down his Holy Spirit on his people and the movement launches. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, this previously timid, ragtag group of people burst forth in a miraculous display. So they're proclaiming the truth of God to a crowd of worshipers who have been gathered from all over the world, and they were hearing the word of God miraculously in their own language. And those that were watching were amazed and they were perplexed, saying, what does this mean? And others were saying, oh, they are filled with wine, they are just drunk, that's all that's going on here. Uh, and that's where we pick up our story here in kind of the part two of Pentecost. So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, responds to this perplexed crowd with the sermon that Luke here summarizes for us. And he tells them exactly what was going on and why. And just like the hearers in that day, when we understand Peter's message here, it cuts us to the heart and changes everything. Because Peter's sermon will first clarify, it clarifies the Bible, and then it amplifies God's greatness, and finally it cuts to the heart. So let's begin at Peter's beginning in verse 14 when he responds to the people's question, what does this mean like this? But Peter, standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them, saying, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. 
The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So let's start by seeing how in this, Peter clarifies the Bible. So start, let's remember, who is it in the crowd that Peter is addressing? It's Jews, devout worshipers gathered in Jerusalem from all around the world. And what does he tell them? He says, these people aren't drunk, as you imagine. It might be five o'clock somewhere, but it's only 9 a.m. here. I miss you, Jimmy. All right. So if it's drunkenness that they are witness, if it's not drunkenness that they are witnessing, then what is it? Well, Peter tells them it's the very fulfillment of ancient prophecy right in front of them. In answering their question, Peter quotes from the Old Testament prophet Joel, a passage that they would have known well. And although Joel was written hundreds of years before this moment in Acts, Peter tells them that this prophecy from old was about this moment now, that they are in the last days. Like we talked about a couple weeks ago when we opened the series, living in the in-between, in-between Jesus' ascension and his imminent return one day soon. We are in the last days. And the proof that we are in these last days that Joel spoke of is that the promise, promise is fulfilled. God's spirit being poured out on his people, and not just a few certain people, but all God's people. Young and old, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, all who call <clears throat> excuse me, upon the name of the Lord to be saved. So in other words, what, what Peter is saying to this Jewish crowd is, you are witnessing the work of God that he promised us long ago, coming to bear before your eyes the fulfillment of God's word as seen by the pouring out of God's spirit. And in Peter's sermon, he is setting the stage for the evidence and the validation that Jesus is the very promised Messiah by pointing out to the crowds that through Jesus, the promises of God's word are being fulfilled in front of them. And Peter does that by quoting Joel here, and we'll see he quotes David's Psalms a little later, all to convince his hearers that God is accomplishing his word and plan through Jesus. Why is this significant? That Peter quotes scripture and its fulfillment to explain what is happening before their eyes? Well, for many reasons, surely. But one important one for the crowd there and for us today is this. It all has to do with clarifying the Bible. In other words, what is the Bible ultimately about? So let me ask that to you. What is the Bible about to you? Maybe you're not sure what the Bible is. It's, it's just another book in a litany of religious texts that are just mankind's best attempts to make sense of this weird world. Maybe to you, the Bible is like, it's a fairy tale. It's a work of fiction, just kind of compiled together over the years, and that's what it is. I would argue for, for many of you, if you're like me and you grew up in church, that for the longest time, you have seen the Bible as, as a collection of like individual stories, individual morality tales that kind of give us life lessons and tell us how to like get God on our side. 
like kind of like a religious Aesop's fable collection. But what was the Bible to Peter? Well, he shows us, he clarifies for us what the Bible is truly all about, that it's not a work of man. And it's not just another religious book with many on the shelf. And while it does have many stories and many life lessons, that's not what the Bible is mainly about. The Bible, from the words of the prophets to the writings of the laws to every story on every page, is ultimately one story about one thing, every page pointing to Jesus. It's not mainly about us, how we should live, how we can be blessed, what we need to do. But the center of the story is about Jesus, his greatness, his glory. He is the main character. So what is the Bible about? This is the Jesus answer. (laughs) You know, like 50% of your answer is in Sunday school. No, the Bible is about Jesus. Peter clarifies it for us. It has always been about Jesus, even from Joel, even from the Psalms. And Jesus himself would say this. Do you guys remember the story of when the resurrected Jesus, the newly resurrected Jesus, walked on the road with two disciples down the road to Emmaus? If you remember, these men had left Jerusalem Uh, Because they had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, but now that he was dead, they were dejected. And Jesus, he joins them along this road and hides his true identity. And when they mention like they've heard rumors that he was still alive, Jesus graciously says this to them. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, hear this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is arguably the greatest small group Bible study that has ever happened. Jesus walks them through the Old Testament and shows them that it was all pointing to him who he is, and what he would do to rescue his people. The gospel writer John wants to clarify what the Bible is about for us, but in the opening of his gospel, he writes this about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Perhaps my favorite commentary on the main, single, overarching story of the Bible is this I want to share with you. It's kind of long, so I'll read it with you. It says, no, the Bible isn't a list of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are a lot of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. 
And at the center of the story, there is a baby. And every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. If you want to study this deep commentary yourself, this is what it is. <laughs> the Jesus Storybook Bible. I will uh, recommend it that it is also good for children. So the crowd asks, what does this mean? And Peter answers by saying, it means scripture is being fulfilled in your midst. The story is true. The Bible is true. And let's clarify what it's all about. Not mainly you, not mainly me, not mainly what we do. It's all about Jesus, what he did and is doing. From every prophet on every page, and what did Jesus do? Well, Peter continues his sermon. And in doing so, goes from clarifying the Bible, and he amplifies God's greatness to the hearers. So follow along as I pick it back up in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. When Peter quotes Joel earlier, he ends the quote with the promise that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Peter transitions here to tell the crowd exactly who that Lord is and how he saves. And as Peter speaks, he holds nothing back in revealing the greatness of God as shown in the person of Jesus. Peter starts by saying, this man, Jesus, the one in your midst, who you saw do mighty work by God's power, is the saving Lord Joel spoke of. So the gathered crowds listening to Peter there. If you remember, they're, they're not only devout foreign Jews, worshipers, but also devout locals who had witnessed Jesus' life among them, seeing him perform miracles and wonders and signs, eyewitnesses to miraculous healings, freeing those trapped in spiritual bondage, feeding the multitudes, forgiving sinners, restoring the shame, calming the storms, and even raising the dead. So why did Jesus do all those things, perform all those signs? Was it to prove his divine authority and power? Absolutely. Peter is saying so here. Was it also to demonstrate his compassion and care for the guilty and the hurting? Certainly. But friends, every time we see the greatness of God in the miracles of Jesus, we see even more than that. We see the greatness of God in Jesus showing us the world he came to bring us. The world as it should be. The world we long for. 
where sickness and pain and death are no more, where embarrassment and shame and condemnation are no more, where fear and anxiety and worry are no more, where there are no more natural disasters, no more corrupt governments and injustices, no more hunger, thirst, exhaustion, or lack, and even no more sin. In other words, the mighty works and signs and wonders Jesus did that they saw were not acts of the supernatural breaking into our natural world, but acts of the true natural world breaking into our unnatural world. The world that we live in now is full of sin and injustice and pain and guilt and longing and death and darkness. It is an unnatural world we live in. The world is under a curse that our turning from God in our sin has brought upon us in creation. It is unnatural. It is a result of our trying to live on our own apart from God's goodness and apart from his rightful place over our lives. And what Jesus shows in his mighty works is the true natural world, the whole perfect redeemed, uncursed world that we were meant for, that Jesus alone brings with him. But how? How does Jesus overcome the curse of our sin and redeem this broken world? By the plan of God. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So let me ask, was Jesus killed by the hands of lawless men who were responsible, or was this always part of God's sovereign plan? Yes. <laughs> Peter wonderfully shares the simultaneous truth that God is sovereign over all things, working his plan while man is responsible for our actions. We've taught on that other times. If you want to hear a message on that or have other resources, just email us. We can help you out on that. But what Peter is saying is that the plan for salvation, to undo the curse of sin and death that plagues every heart and has fractured all of creation, that plan is and always has been Jesus and the cross. It is the plan God the Father, God the Son, and the God the Spirit held before the beginning of time. That the Son, the sinless Lamb of God, would take on the curse of sin and death himself, crucified on the cross, that all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our lawlessness, all of our deserved condemnation, all of the curse would fall upon Jesus on the cross and all of his perfection, sinlessness, righteousness, and reward would fall upon us so that God could be just against evil while merciful against evildoers. Only in the cross is God both just and justifier. And this was always the plan since before creation. As mentioned, the entirety of the Bible points to Jesus and this plan. But certain passages, like Isaiah, are clear. This, again, written hundreds of years before the death of Jesus. Isaiah says this, But he was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will, the plan of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief. But the plan wasn't simply that Jesus would die. Lots of people die, the vast majority of us. No, to prove that justice was met, that the penalty for our sin was paid in full, that the curse was overcome, that sin and death forever defeated, was the lamb slain on the cross would rise again. Triumphant, alive forevermore, because God had raised him up, and it was impossible for death to hold him down because he had robbed death of its power. So Peter continues, much like in quoting Joel by telling that Jewish crowd before him who had been very familiar with King David, that even David looked ahead at this Lord that would conquer death. So back in Acts verse 25, Peter says this, for David says concerning him, this risen Lord, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. David looked forward to the one who would conquer death and hell. And Peter reminds the Jewish listeners that as great as the shepherd king David was, he was not speaking of himself. He was only pointing to the true and greater shepherd king, the Lord of our salvation, the death defeater, Jesus. Peter says that when he continues by saying, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. At this point, Peter's message just crescendos into an unapologetic celebration of the greatness of God in the redeeming work of the risen Jesus and a clarion call to everyone listening to believe when he says this, this Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies 
your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. As clear as Peter could be, men of Israel, you see the scriptures fulfilled in your presence. You have seen the miracles of Jesus before your eyes. You witnessed his death and burial. You were even complicit in his execution. And you know of his rising and conquering death among us. Now think and know for certain that this story is true and that Jesus is the Lord and Christ. Peter unashamedly preaches the gospel. The good news of what God has done in Jesus to accomplish our salvation. That only 50 days earlier, this Jesus was crucified as a blaspheming criminal. And now Peter shouts to the crowd, he is not only alive, but he is Lord and Savior. And by that bold amplifying of God's greatness in Jesus, for those understanding his message, it cuts to the heart. Verse 37. Now when they, the crowd, heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, brothers, what shall we do? What a beautiful but kind of strange statement. They were cut to the heart. Now what does that mean? Well, the, the heart here is the center most place of a person. So it's your deepest self. It says, after hearing this message from Peter about Jesus, they were cut deep down into the center of themselves and cried out, what do we do? Well, let's start by answering what cut to the heart doesn't mean. It doesn't mean they just felt guilty for their sin. Most people feel guilty when, for the wrong things that they've done. And they want to shake away the guilt and shame uh, so maybe they, they run to religion and think, oh, if I can just do some good churchy things, then I can take away that guilt. Or maybe they run to like some self-help program or like try to lose weight or perform better at work. Or maybe if my kids can be great and then I'll be great and this guilt will go away. But feeling guilty is not the same as being cut to the heart. And just like that, being cut to the heart doesn't mean having regret over poor and selfish choices. So when we, when we look around and we, we see the hurt our sin and selfish choices have done to others and even ourselves, and we feel regret at the pain we've caused, so in that we might beat ourselves up and condemn ourselves and chastise ourselves, or maybe we try to make up for that regret by trying to live better and, and people-pleasing and performing acts of charity to try to like come, overcome that regret. But friends, feeling regret is not being cut to the heart. And why? Why are those things not being cut to the heart? Because friends, you can feel guilty and you can feel regret and you can even be sorrowful for your sin and still be focusing on yourself. Looking at yourself, being self-centered. So like, how do I know that I'm being self-centered in my sorrow for my sin? Well, by looking at how we try to deal with it. Are we looking to ourselves to take away our guilt and regret? by being better and doing more churchy things and working and achieving more? 
Or maybe we try to overcome it by condemning ourselves and shaming ourselves and ridiculing ourselves. Friends, we are not truly cut to the heart over our sin if we're still looking at ourselves to deal and cope with it. Then what does it mean to be cut to the heart over our sin? It means that our focus is not primarily on what our sin has done to us, but what it's done to God. It's taking our eyes up off ourselves and looking to God, our holy God, who loves us, who made us, and who we owe everything to. Lifting our eyes off ourselves and to Jesus, seeing the suffering for our sin he was willing to do for us on the cross, the unimaginable love that he would take the hell we deserved for us. That yes, our sin has brought us guilt and we need forgiveness. And yes, our lives are hurtful when we live for sinful desires and we need redemption. But the ultimate sign that someone's, uh, someone is cut to the heart is not that they are sorrowful for breaking God's rules, but sorrowful that they've broken God's heart. Another way of saying it is only when our sorrow is not just about a removal of guilt or a redemption from regrets, but about a restoration to God himself are we truly cut to the heart. Let's read that again. Only when our sorrow is not just about a removal of guilt or a redemption from our regrets, but about a restoration to God himself are we truly cut to the heart. A cut heart turns their eyes off themselves and up to God. And in our story, it's shown in the question, crying out in desperation, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off in this room today. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, restored to himself. Repent and be baptized. Some of us grew up in church and we heard the word repent and uh, if I asked you what it meant, you wouldn't know. <laughs> that would be me too. Because it's just a word we use, right? We just kind of throw it out there like, oh, repent. Yeah. Well, what does it mean to repent? But we often hear repent and believe together. Like when Jesus launched his ministry, he said this. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So repent is the Greek word uh, matanoeo, which simply means to turn. You're, you're facing one direction, and you turn and face the other direction. And just like Jesus and his ministry, Peter here is calling them to repent in what they believe, that their hearts had been facing the wrong direction, trusting in the wrong thing, and they needed to change their heart's trust, what they believe. They needed to repent. So what did the crowds believe that they needed to turn from? That they had hope outside of Jesus. 
that they could look somewhere else other than Jesus to find their guilt forgiven, their lives enough, and their relationship with the holy God restored. But in listening to Peter, they were cut to the heart, and God graciously opened them to see that there is no hope in life or death outside of Jesus, outside of the cross and resurrection, outside of grace. I can't help but read this passage today and think about the story of the rich young ruler that uh, Izzy preached on a few weeks ago. Do you remember uh, this rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he has everything the world has to offer, right? He's got uh, riches, power, comfort, and yet something was still missing in him. So he comes up to Jesus and he asks, teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? Jesus says, simple, keep the commandments, be sinless. (laughs) And the ruler says, done. (laughs) I've done all those things since I was a, a kid. And Jesus says, oh, one more thing. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And the rich young ruler went away, sad. Now, in that story and in our story today in Acts, we have some similarities. The same Jesus that met with the rich young ruler is the same Jesus that was presented by Peter. Both stories have people asking, what must I do? But one walked away sad, and the other stepped forward in faith. What was the difference? Friends, one was trying to add Jesus to his life. The rich young ruler wanted Jesus, but didn't want to give up anything to get him. He wanted to keep his riches, his comfort, his self-righteous pride, his identity in those things. And he wanted to sprinkle a little Jesus on top. He couldn't turn his heart away from trusting those things. And he wouldn't trust in Jesus alone. And Jesus says, okay, Jesus would have none of that. Jesus knew his worth. He was trying to add Jesus to his life. But the crowds in Acts here, cut to the heart, humbled and desperate, they weren't asking to add Jesus to their lives. They were asking Jesus to add them to his They were saying that Jesus is the treasure, that Jesus alone is our only hope, that Jesus, risen, is our salvation and Lord, and that life is found in him alone. And so turning their hearts to God, they say, take away anything, Jesus, that would keep me from trusting you only. I don't want to add you to my life. I want to be added to yours. What must we do? Repent and be baptized. Change your trust. Change your hearts trust. And what is the outward display that we have repented and trusted and that we belong to Jesus? Be baptized. The outward display of our inward heart turn. Friends, let's be clear. Baptism is not what saves you, but a display of the salvation that you already possess. Repent and be baptized. What are you turning to? What are you looking at? And for those of you that say, I've turned to Jesus, have you taken that step of obedience and been baptized? Friends, I'm going to be honest with you. If you've been putting it off, it's time. If you believe in Jesus and have turned to trust in him alone, it's time to be baptized and declare that you are his. 
We're planning on a celebration of baptisms in a couple weeks on October 8th. So come and talk with us after service today. We had people do it first service. Or you can come reach out to the office, but people are saying, it's time. It's time. I want to proclaim my hope in Jesus and be baptized. So this last point as we wrap up. How can we trust Jesus? How can we believe the promise is true, that we will be forgiven, that we will receive a restored relationship with God and his spirit given to us, friends, because Jesus is alive. The resurrection is our seal. Like the rapper Propaganda, who most of us listen to daily, uh, he said the resurrection is proof that the check cleared. So we can repent and trust and look to Jesus alone, knowing that our salvation and the promises are secure in him because he is alive forevermore. So here's the good news. All of us in here need to repent (laughs) in some way or another. Me too. It might be that it's that initial repenting of stop trusting yourself or looking to the things of this world and turn your heart's trust to Jesus alone for your salvation to turn your hope on Christ Jesus the Lord. But if you've done that, and you are a follower of Jesus, some of us might need to repent of trying to just fit Jesus into our lives. Wherever there's space, wherever there's convenience, wherever there's time, as long as he doesn't interrupt too much. Instead of surrendering all of our life to Jesus, we've been holding on and toying with sin in our life for too long that we haven't turned over to him. We've been pursuing idols and finding our meaning and joy in the things of this world instead of Jesus and his kingdom for too long. And it's time. We've embraced the Christ Jesus that saves us, but aren't embracing the Lord Jesus that reigns and rules over us. And it's time to repent. But the good news is we can repent. We can turn. We can trust because the story is true. Jesus has come. He has died. He has risen again to new life. And so do all who call upon his name to be saved. So our story today opened with the crowd asking, how do we set up the chairs? All right, so we're going to practical application. I need you guys to stack chairs over there. No, sorry. The story opened with that crowd seeing all the miraculous uh, languages being spoken. They say, what does all this mean? And Peter answers them saying, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Then being cut to the heart, the crowd asks, what do we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and the restoration with the Holy God. And so we conclude by asking, what about you? Has Jesus cut you to the heart yet? Knowing that he was willing to come to earth, that was the plan, to take the suffering and condemnation of the cross we deserve, that he has risen again in victory. Are you trusting that only in the cross and resurrection can we, forget, uh, can we have the forgiveness and restoration to God we are desperate for. And do you believe that by the cross, our future with God in a redeemed world is awaiting us? Because in Jesus, the work is already done. All we have to do is turn 
to trust, to repent, to believe. Friends, I say this to all of us in this room. Let us not be like the rich young ruler and don't come to Jesus and try to add him to our lives. But friends, let us come to the Lord Jesus and be added into his. This section concludes by saying, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about three thousand souls. Let's pray. Jesus, lead us to repent and believe the gospel. Some of us, maybe for the first time, that we've been putting the weight of who we are, our heart's trust, our life trust in ourselves or the things of this world. And this moment here right now, Holy Spirit, just like you did to the crowds 2,000 years ago, call them to repent and believe and trust in you. Jesus alone in life and death is our salvation. But Lord, all of us, if we know Jesus and we follow Jesus, there are areas in our life that we haven't surrendered over to your Lordship, that we haven't trusted you with, Lord, it could be sins in our lives. It could be idols in our lives. It could be things in our lives that we're still holding on to. Lord, I pray you would free us from that enslavement. Free us from the guilt and trapping of our sin. Free us from being enslaved by the things and false trusts and false hopes of this world. And let us take that step of faith to turn in obedience, to repent, because our King is alive. He reigns forevermore. And one day he is coming back to bring us and reconcile us with God in paradise. And it's in his name that we pray and sing. Amen.